You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Well, good morning, Stonegate. I like that. All right. My name is Jeff Garner, and I have had the privilege over the course of the last year of being the student minister of what I believe to be the best youth group in the country. And um, that was not rehearsed, by the way. Um, That being said, I can't tell you how ecstatic I am this morning to preach to a room full of adults. Now, don't get me wrong. Students are much more, more fun to communicate with. Um, but they have the attention span of a squirrel. So I, I, I can't tell you, you can imagine how floored I was that Rodney allotted me a full 90 minutes to preach this morning. So um, I'm thankful for that. I really am. The Bible is supremely about Jesus. It's a compilation of 66 books that tells one story through the lens of several genres. The Old Testament outlines the historical narrative of God's grand design. The law was provided to show us how to live in the midst of a holy God. Wisdom literature gives practical guidance and is packed with poetic imagery. And the language of prophecy details the preparation of his coming. As we move into the New Testament, we see the Gospels give us a clear account of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, while the epistles show us a a theological framework of the nature of Jesus, that's who he is, and the work of Jesus, that's what he's done. And it also gives us clear instructions as a church on Christian living, Apocalyptic imagery like Daniel and Revelation puts Jesus on the throne, reigning as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You see, every piece of Scripture testifies about Jesus. Essentially, from cover to cover, Jesus truly is the centerpiece of civilization. In Luke 24, 27, Jesus says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets... Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. John 5, 39, Jesus says, regarding the scriptures, it is these that bear witness of me. Still in Acts 8, 35, Philip preached Christ to the Ethiopian eunuch from the book of Isaiah. But in all the Bible's teachings about Jesus, none is more significant in Colossians 1, 15 through 23. And that's where we're gonna land this morning. So I'll invite you to turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one near you under a seat close by. And if you don't own one, then please let that be our gift to you. This is a powerful passage. It clears up any confusion over the identity of Jesus. And hopefully this morning, my prayer is that it will remove any, any lingering doubt concerning his nature. I would contend that these few verses are vital to a healthy and proper understanding of the Christian faith because it shows us that Jesus is supreme. And as a result, he is rightfully worthy and deserving of our hearts. But not only is he deserving of our hearts, he's after them this morning. C.S. Lewis, famed author and theologian who's 
hopefully uh, known for more than Chronicles of Narnia, um, when he describes his own salvation experience, uh, a process, he, he says it this way. He says, the hound of heaven ran me down. Just this beautiful image of God pursuing his people. And I just believe that as his bride, Jesus is after us this morning. He's pursuing us through his word. I'll confess, it's so easy. I know many of you might feel this way. Growing up, knowing the truths about Jesus, to become numb to his life-giving and transformative power. I'm guilty of that. So here's my prayer this morning, is that Jesus would give us a fresh perspective of who he is, that he would renew our joy to seek his face, and that he would restore our zeal to want to make his name known. Maybe you walked in here today simply going through the motions. Maybe you feel like you're supposed to be here or you're required to be here. Maybe you don't know why you're here. Maybe you have nowhere else to go. But I can tell you that it's, it's a desire of a good God this morning that your affections be stirred for him in such a way that you leave here desiring to love him with all of your heart, to love him with all of your soul, to love him with all of your mind and to love him with all of your strength. I guess essentially I'm asking God to do in our hearts this morning what he did to me in my junior year of high school. Oh, is that, is that when you got saved? No, it was my first ever varsity football game. I grew up about an hour and a half north of here in the great town of Plano, Texas. Go Wildcats, maroon and white. And I will never forget my junior year I was on varsity as what they call second string. Okay, now just to clarify for you what that means. Second string means you don't get in the game to play unless essentially one of two things happens. Number one, your team is up by 50. So they put the guys that aren't as good in the game. And seeing as if we were never up by 50 my junior year, that was not going to happen. Or option two, what happens? Somebody gets injured and goes down. Well, I was pretty confident that wasn't going to happen because I was not backing up a weakling. I was backing up an all-state linebacker. So for me, this junior year was just going to be about sitting back and gleaning all that I could from just the seniors and just enjoying the lights and all that they had to take in with its idol worship of the field. And in that moment, I thought, this is going to be a really fun season, just over here on the sideline and enjoying varsity football at its finest. Except the first play of the game... The guy in front of me tore his ACL right through his entire leg. And it was my time. My number had been called. In that moment, I had to step up. Except I left out one little detail. We were playing a small school by the name of Highland Park High School. And the quarterback at the time went by the name of Matt Stafford. <laughs> in case you don't know who Matt Stafford is, he went on to shatter every passing record in Texas high school football history, went on to be the four-year starter at the University of Georgia as a candidate for the Heisman Trophy, and he was drafted number one overall in the NFL draft by the Detroit Lions, and he currently throws to the greatest wide receiver in the NFL who has a nickname of Megatron. This is the guy I'm about to walk onto the field and go up against, but in my head, none of that stuff had happened yet, so this was my moment to make history. In that moment, I let adrenaline take over. And like a deer in the headlights, my knees were shaking. I had one prayer. 
Lord, please let the plague go away from me just this one time. <laughs> Sitting there, drooling, hoping, praying, and sweating, the ball was snapped and the play went away from me and it was just a weight off my shoulders. Until I saw the ball thrown back across the field this way, that's what we call a screen. And in a screen, two six-foot-six porkers are coming right at me with a running back behind them. And my objective is to blow up both these dudes and make the play. And in my head, that's exactly what was going to happen in that moment. These fools come running at me, and I pictured it in all my glory. I'm going to knock both these dudes on their back. I'm going to clothesline the running back. Crowd's going to cheer. Highland Park's going to get on the buses and go back to their high school. They're going to carry me off in the stadium, chanting my name for 10 years. That's exactly what I thought was going to happen. And right about the time our bodies collided, I was pancaked on my back and they housed it 65 yards for a touchdown. Now, why do I tell you that? Probably because, one, I need some humility this morning. But two, man, um, I think sometimes it's so easy for us to put God in a box and expect we know what things are going to be like. For me, I, I, I knew what the game was going to be like at the first snap. And for us, sometimes, even as a church, it's so easy for us to put God in a box when we come to church. I think of Elijah who was listening for the Lord, and the Lord did not come through the wind and the rocks. He did not come through the earthquake. He did not come through the raging fire. But the word of the Lord came to Elijah through a gentle whisper. I just pray this morning that God's word would be made known to us and that our hearts would be open to it. The truth is we weren't called to sit on the bench. We weren't called to enjoy the game. And I think God's calling all of us today to enjoy the inexhaustible riches of knowing him more intimately. So I wanna pray that he does just that. Father, we're so grateful for your word this morning that brings truth. I pray, God, that it would lead us to conviction that would lead us to repentance. Father, I pray that you would give those hope this morning that are in need of it. Encourage and edify your body through your word. Lord, I just pray that we would leave here looking different than when we walked in. I pray that you would be pleased with what you see. Spirit, please roam about this place, changing hearts as you please. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. All God's people said, amen. I want to provide for us a quick background into the culture of what's going on here in Colossians chapter 1. I think it's important, especially looking at the Greco-Roman era, of some things that are affecting this church and how um, we can view that um, through a lens of uh, um, a historical context. And so essentially, around the time this letter was written, there was a serious heresy that had arisen. So much so, it bothered one servant in the church, Epaphras. What a great name. Um, enough to make the 1,300-mile journey all the way from Rome just to inform Paul who was in prison. 1,300 miles. That's like us leaving today for Detroit, Michigan. That's insane. I, two years ago, I ran my first 5K. I nearly died. I remember when I neared the finish line, my brothers were adjacent to the, to the finish line in their red Dodge Ram with the windows down blaring the Rocky theme song as I crossed and collapsed across the finish line. But here, there's not being money raised for a charity. charity. There's no 5K. There's certainly no red Dodge Rams that I'm aware of. 
And the Colossian church is in jeopardy of being influenced by this heresy. It's a false teaching about Jesus. So it merited a strong response from Paul. The city was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. And considering they lived in a Roman province, it's not surprising that this heresy that was threatening them contained elements of paganism. Uh, So uh, in other words, they they, they were worshiping many gods. And considering many of these churches' new converts to Christianity were saved out of a pagan culture, then the believers found the pull to revert to the old life very strong. I'm sure many of us can relate. I know I can. Maybe some of us this morning come from a different religious background upon which emotional pressure or verbal opposition from even your own family weigh heavily against your decisions. Our students this summer had the privilege of hearing from our camp speaker, Afshin Ziafat, who uh, was an Iranian that grew up as a devout Muslim. He chose to turn his back on the false teaching of Islam and profess his faith in Jesus Christ. And as a result, his very father disowned him. Um, And I look at that and I think to myself, perhaps maybe the current struggle for some of you this morning is a specific sin, a sin that has plagued you for years, one that is very tough and one that is very real. The idols in our lives of comfort and control and acceptance that filter through negative behaviors such as premarital sex, alcohol abuse, pornography, self-image struggles that lead to cutting and eating disorders. Maybe for some, a desire for control, a blatant disregard for authority. Maybe these things seem to be repeatedly luring you into sin's grip. See, the first danger to these new believers was a relapse into that paganism, a worship of false gods. So Paul reminded his church right out of the gate in verse four how he had heard of their faith. See, Paul had never visited Colossae. However, he was at one point 100 miles west of the city in a town known as Ephesus where he was preaching the gospel. And as a result of the power of the gospel, it spread on its own volition through the power of the Holy Spirit to Colossae and believers are forming everywhere. And Paul gets word of this news and he feels a pastoral responsibility for the town he's never visited to reach them with a letter of encouragement in the faith especially while these new believers were in the midst of hearing a false gospel. That while Jesus was a good man, they could still hold on to these other idols. And that Jesus truly wasn't God. He wasn't a deity. He wasn't the God man, but he was just a good man. To clear up any confusion about the nature of Jesus and to essentially motivate the people of God in their faith, Paul wrote the following verses as a theological cornerstone of the Christian faith. So read with me. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. For by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. As we walk through this passage, we see that Paul first describes Jesus as the image 
of the invisible God. The Greek word here is akon, okay? not the wrapper, but akon meaning image or likeness. You see, from akon, we get our English word icon, referring to a statue. It's also used in Matthew twenty-two twenty to reference uh, Caesar's portrait on a coin or in Revelation 13, 14, of the statue of the Antichrist. And although man is the akon of God, man is not a perfect image of God. We don't carry his attributes, such as omniscience, his omnipresence, his immutability, his omnipotence. See, we're, we're human. We're not divine. Here's what this means. Jesus Christ is the perfect absolutely accurate image of God. Hebrews 1.3 is a parallel passage which tells us that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of his being. Exact representation in the original language is where we get our word character. And it refers to here an engraving tool or a stamp. This is why the author of Hebrews in one translation renders it this way. It's the imprint of God. Jesus is the exact imprint of God. He's the exact likeness of God. This is why Philippians 2, 6 says he's in the very form of God. Or why Jesus says in John 14, 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Or where the Greek phrase, a me, indicates one of the most powerful phrases ever uttered, I am. So here we see that in Christ, the invisible God has become visible. In Jesus, the transcendent God has become imminent. His transcendence is such that God's total essence will never be able to be fully seen by us. Many passages speak of the fact that God is not able to be seen. Paul praises God in 1 Timothy chapter 1 in this way. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. He also speaks of God as one who has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has ever seen or can see. 1 John 4.12 says, no man has ever seen God. Still in 1 John 1.18, it says that no one has ever seen God. However, in John 6.46, just five chapters later, Jesus says, no one has seen the Father except him who is from God. He has seen the Father. So his imminence among us is such that the very presence of God not only lived among us and walked with us, but now lives within us. The greatest visible manifestation of God himself is found in the very person of Jesus Philippians says that he emptied himself, taking the very form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. So as we, as we read through the passage, we see that Paul describes Jesus as the firstborn of all creation. Jesus didn't just become the firstborn of all creation at his birth at his entrance into the world. And he also didn't just become the firstborn of creation at his glorious resurrection, maybe at the fulfillment of God's plan. That was the moment that, that happened. But rather, Jesus has been the image of God since all of creation. Those who deny that Jesus was God 
will seek support from this verse. They argue that it speaks to Jesus as a created being, and therefore he can't be eternal God. Modern-day proponents of this interpretation would be Jehovah's Witnesses, who claim that Jesus is not God. Jehovah's Witnesses would come to our door when I was a kid. It was like my mom's dream, because she said, I'll listen to you on one condition. You listen to me. And it was always entertaining until I had a baseball game, and the doorbell rang, and I knew who it was, and I would just beg and plead, Mom, can we just bring them to the game, okay? And but I'll say this, Jehovah's Witnesses and others who hold to a wrong interpretation about the deity of Jesus in this verse are misunderstanding the surrounding context. Although the translation can mean in the literal sense, firstborn, as in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, when Mary gave birth to her firstborn son, it's primarily used figuratively. And it refers here to a position or a rank. In Greek and Jewish culture, the firstborn was the one that was given the right of inheritance. But he was not necessarily the first one born. Case in point in Genesis, we see um, Esau was the firstborn chronologically. But it was Jacob that received the blessing. Israel was called God's firstborn in Exodus 4.22. Though they weren't the first people born, they held first place in God's sight over all the nations. In Psalm 89 27, God says of the Messiah, I shall also make him my firstborn. Then goes on to explain what he means by making him the highest over all the kings of the earth. In Revelation 1.5, Jesus was called the firstborn of the dead, although he was not chronologically the first person to be resurrected. Firstborn clearly means highest in rank, not the first created. Therefore, Jesus is the supreme being in all of creation. What does this mean for us? Simply put, all of our worship should be ascribed to the supreme being. And if he is the supreme being, then Jesus is worthy of all of our worship. In verses 16 and 17, I wanna make three assertions as we walk through the passage. And the first is this. Jesus is the creator He's the creator of everything. For absolutely everything in creation has been made by him. There are no exceptions. Things seen and things not seen. The material and the intangible. Even Deuteronomy 29.29 says that the secret things belong to the Lord. Being the creator gives him such qualities as being all-knowing and all-powerful. He is omniscient and he is omnipresent. Psalm 19, one through four, even creation testifies to his glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. The first assertion is this. Jesus is the creator. The second one this morning is that Jesus is eternal. When the universe began, he already existed. John 1, 1 through 2 says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God. 1 John 1, 1 says that that which was from the beginning we have heard. We have seen with our eyes. We have looked upon and touched 
with our hands concerning the word of life. Jesus told the Jews in John 8, 58, before Abraham was born, I am. He is saying that he is the eternally existing God. Revelation 22, 13 describes him as the alpha and the omega. He's the first and the last. He is the beginning and he is the end. Psalm 90, verse 2 says that from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And of his sovereign rule, there is no end. Our finite minds cannot even begin to comprehend this truth. In Psalm 102, we find a contrast between things that we think to be permanent, such as the heavens and the earth on one hand, and God on the other hand. The psalmist says, of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you, you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. So the first assertion we make this morning is that Jesus is the creator. Second is that Jesus is eternal. And in verse 17, the third one that we see is that Jesus is the sustainer. In him, all things hold together. So picture this. Not only did he create the universe, but he sustains it. Psalm 54, 4 says, Behold, God is my helper. He is the sustainer of my soul. Hebrews 1, 3 says that he upholds all things by the word of his power. Every 24 hours, the earth rotates on its axis. Every 28 days, the moon revolves around the earth. And every 365 days, the earth revolves around the sun. Our solar system contains nine planets, 54 moons, thousands of comets, asteroids, and meteors, and God keeps it all in such precise motion that we have the ability to send a man on a ship to the moon and back. Genesis 8.22 says that while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall never cease. Isaiah 40.26 says, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads their host by number. He calls them out each by name. And because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his name and power, not one of them is missing. Jesus also sustains us by meeting our needs. He meets us physically. He meets our needs spiritually. We see in Romans 8, 31 through 32, how Jesus has met our greatest need. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but God delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? We see that Jesus is the creator, he is eternal, and he is also the sustainer. We read on to verse 18 to see that Jesus is named the head of the body, the church. There are many metaphors in the Bible to describe the church. It's called a kingdom, it's called a vineyard, it's called a flock, it's called a building, a family, and even a bride. But the most profound metaphor for the church is that of a body, and Christ is the head. The concept here is not loosely used in the term um, of being a head of a company, like that guy's the CEO, so naturally he's in charge. It's not referencing a kind of position or a rank, but rather refers to the church as a living, breathing organism. Jesus controls every part of it. 
And he gives us life, and he, as the head, gives us direction. This reminds me of the great theological film, Oscar award-winning movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, where the mom tells the daughter, Tula, she says, the man is the head, and the woman is the neck. And she turns the head any way she wants to turn it. Ephesians 1, through 23 says that God has made Christ head over all things for the church, which is his body. This metaphor communicates the uniqueness and the importance of Christ in the life of a believer. And if verse 15 didn't adequately explain enough who Jesus already is, verse 19 solidifies this for us. It puts the nail in the coffin. Verse 19 reads that, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And since Christ plays this role as creator over all things, including humankind, we see here in verse 20 that he is also the instrumental piece of the divine initiative to reconcile all things to God. And so essentially, in conclusion, I want to read to you some of the false teachings and the things that the, the, uh, these teachers were doing um, with the Colossian believers and how Paul uses scripture and the very nature of Jesus to prove them wrong. First, the false teachers at Colossae sought to locate God. But Paul writes in verse 19 that in Jesus, the whole fullness of God was pleased to dwell. To clarify it again for emphasis in chapter two, verse nine, Paul writes that Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The false teachers also sought a higher and superior knowledge. But Colossians 2, 3 reads that in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The false teachers also worshiped angels. They practiced asceticism and they observed Jewish festivals and, um, and holy days. But in Colossians 2, 17 says that these are only a shadow of the things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. All of Colossians can be summed up in chapter 3, verse 11. See, Christ is all and Christ is in all. And he is rightfully worthy to have first place in everything. Most importantly this morning, our hearts. So you might ask, okay, what are the next steps? I mean, practically, how does this play out? How, how do I put him first? How do I get to the point in my life where Jesus is the single most important thing in my life? Do I read my Bible? Do I pray? Do I tell others about him? Do I go on mission trips? Do I fast? Do I meditate on his word? Do I engage in community with other believers? Yes, yes, and yes, these are good things. But here's the thing. These are spiritual disciplines that are used to stir our affections for Jesus, but they're still behaviors. And at the end of the day, behavioral changes will never alter the course of your heart. Instead, they're a mere byproduct of your heart. Let me give you an example. January 10th, I weighed 300 pounds. I'd never weighed that much in my entire life. And I, I was challenged to, to, by a buddy of mine. He said, Jeff, dude, you're fat. You gotta lose some weight. And so we, we put some money down. It's a great motivator, money, right? And, and so for four months, we engaged in this competition. And, I, and over four months, I, I lose 59 pounds. Um, I've gained about 15 back the last two. Give me a break. But in those first four, I lose almost 60 pounds. Here's the catch, though. For most of that time, I look back at my heart, and you know what? By sheer willpower, by strength, by, by, by the motivation to have my wife desire her husband or um, the students not to be ashamed of a fat youth pastor, all these things are motivations. But at the end of the day, 
um, it, it, was, it wasn't from the heart. Uh, I won the bet. I won 100 bucks. Probably spent it that weekend on chilies. Um, but, but the thing is, here's why I tell you this. Losing my weight wasn't a byproduct of the heart. I, I did a lot of that by, by just sheer willpower and determination, and I'm ashamed of that. I'll give you another example. Boy meets girl. Boy says, hey, girl. She looks fine. Boy's like, oh, I got to get with that. And so what does boy do? He finds out about her. He realizes girl goes to church. Snap. So what does boy do? He gets himself some khaki shorts and a polo. He's done wearing grungy shirts and flip-flops. He even gels his hair. He shows up to church with a Bible, doesn't know where to turn, but at least he has it. He's even timed when to raise his hand at the proper chorus. And everyone begins to think this guy has changed. His heart has been made new. Seriously? The dude's changed behaviors. It hasn't altered the course of his heart. Case in point, prove this. When the 16-year-olds break up and realize they're not going to spend eternity with each other, um, what does he do? He goes back to his old ways because there was never a transformation of the heart. Here's the deal. Nothing we do is going to make God view us any different. One of the greatest encouragement for us this morning as a church is that God doesn't love some future version of us. Romans 5.8 says that in what while we were still sinners, in his love, Christ chose to actively go to the cross and die for us. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And we're charged with but one response. Repent of our sins and believe in him. Press into the belief that Jesus is who he says he is. And remember, not the Jesus we see in the gospels, the accurate account of his life, death and resurrection. And not just the Jesus that Paul writes about here in Colossians as the image of the invisible God, but the same Jesus who has eternally existed with the Father throughout all of Scripture. All of God's Word testifies to his character. Every piece of Scripture that follows the Genesis account of the fall of man is saturated with the redemptive context that Jesus is the chief figure in the, in the stage of life. And we cannot fully understand anything on that stage until we first identify its relation to him. God's word brings encouragement in the form of knowing this, that this from cover to cover is all about Jesus. In Genesis, he's the breath of life. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's the great high priest. In Numbers, he's the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he's Moses' voice. In Joshua, he's salvation's choice. In Judges, he's the lawgiver. In Ruth, he's the kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he is our trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he is sovereign. In Ezra, he is the true and faithful scribe. In Nehemiah. He is the rebuilder of broken walls and dreams. In Esther, he's Mordecai's courage. In Job, he is our timeless redeemer, and there is no one like him. In Psalms, he is our morning cry. His ear is attentive to the cry of his people. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. 
He lifts us out of the pit, out of the mud, and out of the mire, and sets our feet on a rock, gives us a firm foundation, a new hymn of praise I'll put in your mouth, a new song we will sing to the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And in Proverbs, he is wisdom's choice. In Ecclesiastes, he is the time and the season. In Song of Solomon, he's a lover's dream. In Isaiah, he's the prince of peace. And in Jeremiah, he is the weeping prophet. In Lamentations, he is the cry for Israel. In Ezekiel, he's the call from sin. In Daniel, he's the stranger in the fire. In Hosea, he is forever faithful. In Joel, he is the Spirit's power. In Amos, he is the arms that carry us. In Obadiah, he is the Lord our Savior. And, and in Jonah, he is the great missionary. In Micah, he is our peace. In Nahum, he is our strength and shield. In Habakkuk and Zephaniah, he is pleading for revival. In Zechariah, he is the restorer of our lost heritage. And in Malachi, he is rising with healing in his wings because he's the son of righteousness. And in Matthew, he's the king of the Jews. In Mark, he's the son of man. In Luke, he's the son of God. In John, he's the Messiah. He is, was in the beginning. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And he so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And in Acts, the Spirit has charged us as the church with the blessing of taking that gospel to the nations. And in Romans, he's the grace of God. In Corinthians, he mends all divisions. He is the minister of reconciliation. And in Galatians, he is the head of the church. In Ephesians, he is our freedom in Christ. In Philippians, he is our joy. In him, we are complete. And in Colossians, he is supreme. He is the image of the invisible God. For by him, through him, and to him are all things. And through him, the whole fullness of God was pleased to dwell and reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And in Thessalonians, he is our true and coming king. He's going to rescue for himself and purify a people who are eager to do good. In First and Second Timothy, he is our faithful pastor. In Titus and Philemon, he is our rock. And in Hebrews, he is the everlasting covenant. He is the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of his being. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the prophets of old. He is greater than the entire sacrificial system because he is the sacrificial lamb of God. In James, he is just. In First and Second Peter, he is our good shepherd. And in first, second, and third John, he is our love and he is greater than anything this world will ever have to offer because he is our satisfaction. And in Jude, he is a lover coming back for his bride. Oh, that we would contend for the faith that was once entrusted to us. And in Revelation, he is the alpha and he is the omega. He is the beginning and he is the end. He is the lamb of God and he is the great I am. And scripture says that he's coming back on a white horse with his robe dipped in blood and his name tatted up on his side, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he's gonna make all things new. His name is Jesus. 
And he is worthy of all of our praise. And he wants nothing this morning from you. He doesn't want you to change your behavior because you can't. He wants you to hand over your heart. And for each of you, that that might look different. Last night, I had the I had the fun opportunity with some friends to watch the 2015 NFL Hall of Fame induction ceremony for the next few guys to be enshrined for eternal glory for all that they've accomplished on the the gridiron, one of which being Charles Haley, famous defensive end for the Dallas Cowboys who brought us three Super Bowl victories. Oh, how I long for those days again. But as I sat there last night watching each guy give this glorious and emotional speech about their accomplishments and the difficulties of reaching the height of what they achieved to be called the greatest at their position, I watched those around them cheer them on with tears of joy because they were the ones that were there with them through it all. But at the end of it all, I realized this these guys are retired. They're old. They're never going to have the joy of seeing competitive action ever again. And it's as if the best part had already passed. They had moved on and graduated to the next stage in life. And to be honest, to me, I didn't celebrate much. It was depressing. Isn't it a beautiful notion to know that we as the people of God will never, ever graduate from the gospel of grace, but rather that we will move more deeply into it over time. And as we continue to see how profoundly sinful and wretched our wicked and deceitful hearts are, we get the privilege and the eternal blessing of seeing how much more profoundly gracious God truly is. And this morning, that gracious and good God, the eternally existing God by the name of Jesus, is here this morning to do a mountainous work in the hearts of his people. For many of us, it might be to restore our hope. I pray that God this morning would, through his word, bring about conviction that would lead to repentance. His word says that it's... It's breathed with all inspiration and it's used to bring about teaching, correction, rebuke, and training in righteousness. And I pray that all those things would point us to rightful Christian living, to extend the glory of God when we leave these walls today. I believe God is raising up men in this room to lead their families and to better point them to Jesus, to sacrificially love their wives as Christ loved us and gave himself up for his church. I believe God wants to strengthen the heart of men in this room to pursue the beautiful gift of life that God has given them in their children and to love them and to to mold their hearts to love Jesus with all of their heart, with all of their soul, with all of their mind, and with all of their strength. And this student ministry and this church wants to partner with you in the joyous journey of parenthood through the deep trenches of all of it, and to know that on the other side of Cruddy Valley, God has a beautiful and magnificent and glorious plan for the life of your family. 
to use you to extend the glory of God in your own community. And so would you guys just bow your heads where you're at and pray with me? We, we, we just want to make much of his name. We want to ask God to do just that this morning. And above all else, I believe salvation might come to the hearts of some this morning. Jesus tells us that his desire is that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Father, you are a good and gracious and merciful God. An inexhaustible amount of unmerited favor has been bestowed upon our behalf. We are worthy of none of it this morning except to take what you've given us and point it back to you and to simply say thank you. Sacrifice and offering you do not desire. Lord, you just want obedience. I pray that you would move your people in community to be faithful to your word so that we can become a tangible expression of your love in this community, that Stonegate Church might become the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. The harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. God, would you give us the courage and the fortitude and the obedience to put our hands to the plow and faithfully sow, sow, and sow, even with the mindset that we might not get the blessing of seeing any fruit but that God trusting all the while that you and your perfect timing and your sovereign hand, that you will reap your harvest when you are good and ready. And our prayer is that you would reap a harvest in hearts this morning, that you would mend division, that you would unify your people under your word, and that God, you would edify us, leaving these walls today looking different than when we walked in. We say thank you for who you are. We say thank you for what you have done. And we pray all these things in the precious, most awesome, most beautiful name of your son, Jesus Christ, the name that is above every name, all God's people said. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.